0: Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll start into our Bible study this morning. Our Father, again, we're thankful for your word and the things that uh, you have told us about your, your will for us, and in that will, you have made promises to us, and we ask as we understand some of those promises today a little better, that it might be an encouragement for how we conduct ourselves on a daily basis. We thank you for it then. Amen. Okay. Since we do have just a, a couple of a uh, couple of you at least that are joining us that aren't normally with us, uh, we started back at the beginning of the year. We started a series on faith and God's promises, and so I've been going through after going through a definition of faith and looking at what faith involves. And so, just ask you, um, who produces faith in the believer? Where do we get faith from? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it's part of, we would call it, it's part of the, part of the fruit from the Spirit, if you can't hear the the five people that are sitting scattered out throughout here. Yes, so it's part of the fruit from the Spirit, that's faith. Now when we exercise faith, contrary to maybe popular opinion, do we just direct faith at just anything that we have an interest in? No, it's to God's promises. It's to God's promises. So we have to find promises in God's word. Now, oh, should That would have been a good question. Where do we find those? We find promises in God's word. Okay. Uh, and God's made lots of promises. Is every promise that is in his word, is every promise one that we can personally lay hold of? No. No. It has to be a promise that is written to what kind of people? The church to the church to people that are to people that are that make up the body of Christ or the church exactly that's the first thing. Second of all, not every promise for those people in the church is always applicable in every situation. So we have different situations that we find ourselves in, and so there are some promises that are uh, have bearing on us at a given time, and some promises that don't. And so it's also important that so uh, we have a promise. God's made to all believers out of Galatians chapter five that he says, walk by the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust from the flesh. But that's, he says, when you walk by the spirit. But then that that implies that not all, that's, believers need to be walking by the spirit. And it's a promise that they can do that when they need to. When, when we're dealing with the flesh, we can walk by the spirit and not fulfill those lusts. Similarly, Uh, Paul uh, and James both tell us that we can resist the devil, and James tells us that to resist the devil and he will flee from you. So that's a promise that is given to all believers, but the one that actually is able to take that promise and apply it is the one that is actually dealing with Satan, attacking them at a given point in time. And so that's uh, just some examples of that, just to kind of bring everybody up to speed. What we started last week, as we're looking again, as we resume this study on, on God's promises as we looked at the fact that we can do things that are pleasing to God. So we started looking at pleasing things and this'll, we got through part of our outline last week. We're going to get through part of it today. And then we've got one more long section of this section of this outline of things that are pleasing that hopefully we will be able to conclude next week. I don't, I can't promise that. Those, Those of you that know me well, you know that we don't always get through things as fast as I would think, but we have three key terms uh, that are involved, that are translated please or pleasing in the New Testament. We have arrestos, which is pleasing, arresco, a verb, which means to please, and you arrestos, which means to be well pleasing. So it's not just pleasing, but well pleasing. That little EU on the beginning of it, epsilon, upsilon, uh, that we actually have there in the Greek, means well pleasing. It's a good thing. It's pleasing in a very good way. Okay? But as we looked at some things about being pleasing last week that we can be pleasing. I want to begin today with Galatians chapter 1 with, uh, with I think, a warning for us. Um, and we have this warning given in different ways throughout the New Testament, but here we have it in Galatians chapter 1 where Paul says, For am I now seeking the... the oh, Galatians 1.10. Galatians 1.10. I apologize. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please? There's a word to please men. If I were still trying to please men or if I'm pleasing men, I would not be the slave of Christ. And so Paul, and Paul, what he's doing is he's trying to, apparently these false teachers that had come to Galatia had made this claim that uh, what they were teaching about being circumcised and keeping the law that that was consistent with what Paul had said, that maybe Paul just hadn't got around to that or they'd missed what Paul said. And this comes out a couple times in Galatians that it, that the implication by Paul trying to correct some things is that I didn't teach that and I don't teach that. But that's what he's indicating here. And part of the, re- the importance of this about pleasing men is Paul says, I, I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I'm here to explain to you the way God's doing it. The, 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 the principle by which God is directing our lives, which happens to be in the book of Galatians, we would all say, well, that's grace in Galatians. It's really the focus on the ministry of the Holy spirit, primarily because what he's, what he's going to tell them eventually in Galatians is if you're trying to live by law, you're definitely not living by the spirit. It's just not possible. It just doesn't happen that way. Uh, you can't be doing both. You can't be both living by the ministry of the Spirit. I'm and if you have a question on that, you can go look at chapter 3, the first three verses of Galatians 3, and you can see that contrast. But Paul says, I'm not trying to please men. Um, if we were in probably a normal setting where it was a little easier to ask questions and have you answer, uh I had asked the question, what are some things that some believers or even churches might do to try to please men? I wrote down, this is from a pastor-teacher point of view, uh, we might avoid teaching some doctrines because we know that it will upset some people. So we just don't teach on some things. And I've known pastors that have said, I believe that, I just can't teach it (laughs) because I know it'll bother some people. And I'm thinking, boy, you're robbing them sometimes. Depending on the the nature of the truths, you're robbing them of some truths. Actually, that would be true of any truth. Uh, Some being a little bit more vital than others. Uh, Also, uh, sometimes I've known pastors that have taught on something and you have address it. And I've asked them, I said, why did you teach on that? And they said, well, because the people wanted me to teach on that. And I was like, but the Bible doesn't say that. And he goes, I know, but it's kind of what the people wanted. And they asked if I'd do this, this series. And I was just kind of like, I just that just absolutely flabbergasted me that a person would do that. I would also say the other thing, and and this comes, I, I this has been on my mind a lot because I'd read uh, I, I over a month ago, over a month ago, I had somebody had sent me a link for a church site that they wanted me to look at something. And so I pulled it up and, and uh, I looked at the thing they wanted me to say, but then I went back and I looked at like the church's opening page and the church's opening page was all about, hey, if you're tired of boring, dry religion and such like that, and I'm, I'm probably misquoting and misrepresenting a little bit what they said, but come here, you'll find people excited about God and we have a fun, fun, encouraging atmosphere. And I just was thinking about that word F-U-N and I was thinking it's, it's really interesting how as churches, that we try to sell Christianity as fun. Now, there, we can have fun. I mean, in our group, I think everybody would agree, we've had a lot of times that we've had fun. We've had fun sometimes doing worldly trivial things, such as playing bunco at Orth's at, on New Year's Eve, which is a riot. It's really a lot of fun. But we've had fun doing doing things where we actually get together and sing, or we get together and we have some really good Bible studies, or really good prayer time together with other people, or just sitting down and just talking with other believers about what God's doing. And to say that some of that's fun, but there are a lot of things about Christianity that's not fun, that taking time to show mercy to people when they're suffering. Not necessarily fun. But it's a really important thing to do for the benefit of other saints. And so to me, I just I was thinking about that in terms of trying to please men. But having said that, then I want to look at a verse that seems like, uh, and we're going to skip over 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, where Paul says here that he was committed, God approved of Paul to entrust him with this gospel of God. We're not going to talk about what that is. But I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because if you look at this verse, you might think, well, Paul's contradicting himself from what he said over in Galatians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 33, he says, Just as I also please all men in all things, or uh, not uh, not seeking then my own benefit, or the thing that's beneficial just for me, but of the many... That they may be saved. Now, the larger context that Paul's dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 10 and going back into chapter 9 is that uh, we all have things that we're interested in doing, we all have things that we like. But Paul says, I'm willing to give those things up so that that does not get in the way of communicating the gospel to somebody that is unsaved. Or, and when he says that they may be saved, I would even, well, if you go back to verse 32, give no offense either to the Jews or the Greek or the church of God. Jews and Greek, in other words, we put it this way. Paul knew he was free of the law. And we're going to look at a verse today in which Paul says, there's nothing unclean of itself. But when Paul was dealing with people that had issues over things that were clean and unclean, guess what? Then Paul, to, to use the modern terminology, Paul kept kosher around those people because he didn't want that freedom to get in the way of what he was doing for them. He's not trying to keep them happy so that church is exciting or fun. He just doesn't want anything that he can do to get in the way. And if he's around a Jew, or excuse me, a Gentile, that doesn't fuss over those things, then Paul doesn't fuss over all those things. Modern day example. I just, I think this is a good modern day example. If you're talking, if you show up, this happened to me many years ago. I'd helped a guy bale some hay. And when the hay baling got done, one of the, another guy drew, pulled up in a pickup truck and he pulls out gets in the back. He's got a cooler and he pulls out some beer and he goes, here, run a beer. And I am I was like, I'll, I'll pass. That's okay. And he, and he goes, oh, you don't drink beer? And I said, I, I just, I just don't need that. Uh, and I was just like, I didn't. But I didn't fuss over it. I didn't. I could have sat there and go, oh, you guys shouldn't do that. Shouldn't, shouldn't be out here drinking cold beers on a hot day. Because in reality, there is nothing actually wrong with doing that. But sometimes there are Christians that sometimes get very upset when they watch unsaved people do things that they really think are perhaps wrong. And they can make a big deal about that. And so then that, so then that unsafe person thinks, well, this is all this person's about just not drinking beer. <laughs> when in reality, what they should go away with is, oh, that's a person that told me about Jesus. <laughs> if you have that opportunity. And so that would be a, just a, maybe a modern day example of a situation in which we might not f- fuss over a thing when you're around unsaved people that maybe do things, um, I worked in a warehouse many years ago, and I worked with a bunch of guys that they, I tell you, they couldn't go a day without talking about things that were inappropriate. And I could have spent a lot of time telling them, hey, please don't talk about that. Please don't talk. But you know what? They were unsafe guys. How, how could you expect anything better of them? And uh, by not fussing over that, it actually gave me the opportunity to share the gospel uh, with my boss one day, uh, because he actually kind of brought some things up. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. But the last group that he mentions here in verse 32 is the church of God, which if we take that expression that they may be saved at the end of verse 33, and we expand that, that it's not only about unsaved people getting saved, but even about the fact that believers are going on being saved. We are progressing in our salvation. We're growing. We're maturing that we can actually live without offense towards believers. And sometimes you run into believers that have certain issues. They're not where you are. You've matured. And so things that maybe were issues at one time aren't issues for, they aren't issues for you anymore, but they still are for them. You can actually back off those things and so that you give them time to grow. You don't need to flaunt your liberty, shall we say, in front of other people. And so as he's talking about this being pleasing here, this is what he's talking about. He's not contradicting what he says in Galatians over there. He's not changing what he teaches. He's not changing God's principle for how we live as though that is going to make a big difference or anything. In this situation here, he's talking about some of his conduct so that it doesn't get in the way of others. I and mean, uh, hopefully, that's, hopefully that's understandable what we're talking about. He's not contradicting himself in these two statements here. Now let's go over to Romans chapter 12. I've got two passages in Romans that I would like us to look at, and I think they're both related. I think beginning in Romans 12, all of the rest, or the next several chapters are all really related to what he introduces here in chapter 12 and verse 1. So Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I encourage you, therefore, brothers, by the uh, tender mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your logical priestly service. And the word that's translated acceptable in the New American Standard Bible, if that's what you're reading from, uh, but it says it's a holy sacrifice and then acceptable to God. That word is well-pleasing. That's our word. So you can understand that, which word he's referring to here. Uh, And he says it's your logical priestly service. But he says, present your body (coughs) as a living sacrifice. Now, the first time I ever did this study on things pleasing to God, this happened... uh, Probably 25 years ago, I was listening to Christian radio. There was a man that came on that was a, a, a legalistic teacher. Uh, and I occasionally would continue listening to him when, he came, when his radio show came on. But he says, I would like to challenge you, because he was trying to teach Christians that the law is still valid for the day. And he kind of said in his very distinguished, very deep tone, Can you think of anything in the Word of God that is pleasing to God that isn't described in the law? And, and I thought... Romans 12, 1, present your body a living sacrifice. That's well-pleasing to God. I mean, just right off the bat. And I'm thinking, and nobody did that under the law. The sacrifices under the law were slaughtered and killed. And so that got my interest. So then I pull out my my uh, Greek concordance and start looking up the words for pleasing and well-pleasing and looking at all these. And I'm thinking, and I'm looking look at all these things that God prescribes for our life at that are um, how we live. And none of them, most all of these things are not uh, indicated under the law. He says, present your body as a living sacrifice. All of this. Him? Yes. Him? Yes. Um, Those Old Testament sacrifices, though, that God designated, he did say they were a sweet savor. And they were pleased. So they were pleasing to him under the law. What, uh-huh. that man, what that man was indicating was there's nothing that God asks us to do today that's pleasing to him that wasn't indicated in the law. Yeah, it's, I got what you said, but okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. Yeah, okay. Yes, we're not saying that those people did things that the keeping the law was not pleasing to people in the Old Testament. That is not at all what I'm trying to indicate. So thank you for making sure we're clear on that. No. They did things that were pleasing, but what is is pleasing for us to do now uh, are things that weren't dictated under the law, and I think that that's important for us to remember. Now, when he's talking about presenting your body as a living sacrifice, this is the foundation of everything else that he's going to say from this point on. It actually ties in with verse 2, do not be conformed to this age. And that age to which he's referring to in the context that he's just got done talking about was the context of the law, beginning back all the way back into chapter 7, early in the book of Romans, but especially chapters 9, 10, 11, where he's dealing with Israel under the law. And so he says, Don't be conformed to this age. So we're in an age that wants to set up rules, standards. We don't, when I was. When I was growing up, we had people say, Yes, we're not under the law, but we have standards. That's that's a that's a matter of semantics, man. It's just a way of taking the term law and commands and reformulating in a word that try you can get away with having law without calling it law, but that's all it is it's that, that is not the way that is not the way that you and I are to live in our, these bodies that we present, but rather we to be transformed by the renewed quality of our mind. In other words, he's saying, bring this mind that has been renewed, that can think on things different than the, than anybody else can think about. You take the truth of God and you can be relating to the truth of God in a way that other people look at that and you go, oh, it doesn't make any sense waste of time, you can think on those things and allow that here to transform you in your conduct in this physical body. In other words, you can, if you were with us in the, the first hour this morning, you can, like Jim was saying, you can remember from out of Romans 6 that you are a dead one with Christ to the sin nature, but one that is a living or resurrected With Christ at the Father's right hand. You can remember that you're seated above. You can, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, you can set your mind on things above, not on things on this earth, because you have a renewed mind. And when you do that, Christ can actually be lived out through us. Just as he says, Jesus himself said that in John 15, you abide or you be at ease in me. So you got to be relating to who are you in him to abide and be at ease there and I will be at ease in you. He will abide in us. He's he's in all believers, but not necessarily at ease in all believers. So he goes on, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewed quality of your mind that you might prove what is the, the will of God. And you're proving it because you're actually getting to see it worked out so that there's like a thumbs up going, hey, this really does work. This is exactly what God said that which is good and acceptable and well-pleasing. You see that? Well-pleasing, and then that last word that's translated uh, perfect in your in your Bibles mature. So there's a mature aspect of the will of God. There's a well-pleasing aspect of the will of God, and it's a good part. Now from here, let's just kind of look at some examples of how this is the background for the rest of this. Verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as (laughs) to have a sound judgment, as God has allotted to each one a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Um, Did I? There we go. I think maybe I missed one of these here. But anyway, it doesn't make a difference. Let's, let me go back up to verse 3 for a minute. It says, For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And then I think right here, if we have a change, not to set his attitude above what is necessary. That word think is actually the idea of the frame of mind or your attitude, but to set his attitude to an attitude of salvation. Paul uses this expression, and we're not going to get caught up in trying to chase this down right now, but we've done this at other times, that when he says this attitude, this attitude above, and not to set an attitude above what is necessary, Paul says it's possible that people actually, they set their attitude or their frame of mind on with themselves, on themselves. They, everything is in terms of who I am and how I look at the world. And we all, and the thing is, that's really the way a lot of the world operates, isn't it? They. They're the standard, exactly. They're the standard. They measure what you say through who they are, through their standards, through how they think. And this is really what Paul's getting at when he says not to set their attitude higher than it ought to be. They're saying, I'm somebody, I'm above all this, and so I'm the measure of the standard above all of you, and I'm the one that judges whether or not you're doing it all right. And so this is what Paul's getting at uh, in this passage. And so then he says, so as we, the many, are one body in Christ, and we each are members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, to each of us, we are to exercise them accordingly, and then he's going to start going through this. The idea is every single believer in the body of Christ has a gift, a supernatural ability. He, you aren't born with an ability to play piano. And you're not given a spiritual gift to play piano. That's not what he's talking about. There's no spiritual gift to poetry writing. There's no spiritual gift to painting paintings. There are spiritual gifts that God gives to meet needs of others in the body of Christ. Your hand was designed by God when he created Adam and Eve. Your hand was designed to serve a a function in the body. Your feet were designed. I've got a good friend that I grew up, uh, went to college with when we were in Iowa. We, we continue to stay in touch. He amazed me. I could watch that guy walk on his hands from one end of a gymnasium to the other. I was, was really impressed. I can't even do a handstand. But you know what? I watched him walk on his feet many, many times and he does that a lot better than walking on his hands. Because even though the hands can do that, that's not their function. And the feet are specialized for that. And that's just an example that everybody has an ability to serve a unique ability, and it's God-given. It's not a natural talent, and it's not a talent you can even develop by taking lessons, really. And so he's telling us, use those gifts. Now, this goes back to the idea of presenting your body. If you present your body, why are you presenting it to God? Because God needs bodies? Because it's through you that God is working in the lives of other people. And he's given you a special gift that he works through to serve God and to help other people. And so this is what you're gonna do. So he gives the example here at that time. They still had prophecy operating. Prophecy was to be exercised with proportion to the faith. If service, there's a gift of serving. The type of people that just, they just are serving people that need help, whatever it is, whatever that might be. I don't know, they need someone to come by and clean their house or cook for them or whatever. I don't know, there's a lot of different things in the realm of serving. There's teaching and the person that teaches Ought to focus on the teaching. The word for teaching, by the way, without getting too sidetracked, is a word that emphasizes teaching that is not necessarily always put into practice, or it's not designed specifically for practice. He who encourages, or exhorts in some of your Bibles, but he who encourages is, is encouraging. That person that can stand up and say, come on, you know what the Word of God says. You've been taught the Word of God. Now let's get on board and let's move and do this. And there's people that we need people like that. He who gives... But generosity, not tying things up with strings and saying, I'll do it in this way. If I donate this much, do I get a plaque? Do I get to become a Patreon? You know, big thing on the internet these days for people that are creating things. He who organizes. Some of your Bibles have the word rule. I changed this. It's not rule. It's a person that stands in front of others to put those people in order. And we sometimes need somebody they can point out and say, hey, there's a need over there. Have you seen that need? Oh, I didn't notice that. And they point that out to those that have those gifts. And then to do that with diligence. Yes? Oh, yes. Yeah, if you're interested in a verse on that, Romans chapter 16, verses one and two, there's a lady by the name of Phoebe, and he said that she organized, except our Bibles don't say that she organized. Uh they, they translated another way to make her that she was a patron, that she was like financially helping people. And you know why they did that? Because they don't want a woman telling men what they're supposed to do. But in reality, that's what she did. She had the gift of organization where she could see needs and she could direct people that had the ability to meet those needs to meet them. And Paul said she even did that for him. Okay. And then he goes on, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Because we all know people that suffer. And there are some people that are specially equipped to do that. And so this is why this is, and he doesn't cover all the gifts. There are other gifts mentioned in other passages. But the significance of this is, in the context, is this goes back to why you present your body as a living sacrifice. You present your body because it's through you. You're going to operate. The person that has mercy, they got to physically get up and somehow or another interact with that other person, even if it's through a phone call. You're using your mouth and your hand to hold the phone and so on and so forth things like that and the person that is organizing has to make contact in some way or another has to be able to see the need that's present see the person that has the ability to need and get them connected so we're doing activity through this body that we present to him as a living sacrifice and he said if you remember twice in that context above that that's God, that's a well-pleasing sacrifice to God. It's pleasing to God, and it's well pleasing when you do this. That's the promise, then. If He tells you that you can, if He tells you that you can present your body as a sacrifice that's well pleasing, that's a promise. That it will be well-pleasing to God when you do this. So then he goes on in the rest of this chapter, he talks about really about love. Because when you serve those gifts and you're ministering to others in the body of Christ, minister is a fancy word for serve. All the word means is to serve. In fact, the the, the interesting thing about that is that the term ministry, the Greek word that it translates, actually a word meaning common service, not fancy service, not specialized service, just service, common service. We read, oh, I don't serve, I do ministry. Makes it sound important. It's service. It's service is what it is. And as we serve, whether because we have the gift of service or just in general serving our gift, Paul says that we're to do this in love. And he says, let love be without hypocrisy. I love you. I love you. I love you. And you never see it. You never see me do a thing about it. Abhor what is evil. And in the context where he's talking about love is, there are going to be things that are going to stand out and they're going to be inappropriate to the situation. They're inconsistent with that. And Paul tells them in that context You stand back from that because that evil spreads. That kind of evil spreads. Second of all, cling to what is good. When you find those things that really do make for a sense of well-being in other believers, those are the things that as you're exercising love, you grab onto and hold onto those things because those are appropriate. And you're going to figure out after a while that you can serve in a manner that is not the way God wants it really to be done, but you're getting the job done, but it's not necessarily the way God wants it. He says, no, he says, avoid that, abhor that, but you're going to find the things that do do God's will in serving others in a way that's pleasing to him and grab on and hold on to those things. This is what he's getting at. And then he goes on from there and uh, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And we've talked about the brotherly love. It's not just agape love, doing what's best for others, but even showing that very kind, very warm aspect of love to people agape can at times kind of come across cold it shouldn't but sometimes maybe the way we do it if we don't remember the brotherly love we can kind of be a little bit too calculating and it shouldn't be that way as believers and then give preference to one another in honor not lagging behind in diligence and you can read the rest of this. all of this is just as an illustration of the fact this is what you and i are to be doing as believers towards others and when we are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, and we are serving other believers, and we're doing so with the kind of love that God wants us to have for them. That's well-pleasing. That's well-pleasing. And the indication, as a promise is, is that we can be well-pleasing. Now let's back up to Paul's open the opening verse we looked at in Galatians 1.10 and think about that. If I'm sitting there trying to figure out how to please men, because I'm trying to just keep everybody happy, then I'm not going to be doing this, because as I'm presenting this to God, my body to God, and I'm going about ministering my gift, I'm going to be not just doing what's going to make you happy, I'm going to be doing what's in your best interest, which will ultimately really make you happy. Now, I'm not saying doing the best thing for other people that makes them unhappy. We're not. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm just saying if all we do is focus on hey, we got all these people that show up at church and I just don't want to do anything to offend them. And boy, they really need to hear this. But if I tell them this, they, it might, they might get their nose get bent out of shape. And then that's the last time they'll be here at church because this, I'm not going to say that then, even though it's what they need to hear. Then you're not going to really be doing what they really need. Does everybody get that? I think that there's an important way that this all can connect in, in what we're looking at in terms of being pleasing to God. The next one I want us to look at, and this all kind of, remember, this all ties together. We're skipping over chapter 13, uh, but really all of this, this whole section is how we are to be living as those that have presented our bodies to others. And if you look in chapter 14 and verse 18, Paul says, For for the one serving Christ in this is well-pleasing to God, and approved, he says, by men. Now, what is he talking about that he's pleasing to God? Well, we're going to back up here in this context and we're going to take a look. There are believers that have certain promises that, from God that they don't know. One of those promises in Romans 8.1 is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You know, that verse has been in my Bible since I was a little kid. It wasn't, I don't think, until I was probably about 19 or 20 years old, 20, let's say 20, when I actually learned, oh, that this verse, that this verse was in the Bible and it was for me. And that there was something about me. Part of the problem was as I was trans I was reading from a King James Bible. and I don't want to get caught up in this, but the King James Bible is based on the Texas Receptus. And when they when they somewhere along the line in his transmission, the words from verse four got moved up to the end of verse one so that it made this kind of like a conditional no condemnation. You, were, you weren't condemned if you're in Christ. Oh, and you are doing what God wants, <laughs> which that kind of that's like, well, what is it? Is it am I not condemned because I'm in Christ or is it I'm not condemned? It's like do you have to have both of those. That was part of the problem. But you know what? Some believers don't know this. Some believers do not know that they're not condemned in Christ. This promise, this just blew my world open when I came to understand what this was. It uh, helped me. Chapter 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? In other words, the question is, what can separate us from the love of Christ? There are some believers that don't know that. They may quote the verse, but they don't really grasp There's nothing that can separate them. Or how about the verse that more of them know this one better than that last verse. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from his love. And there's a lot of believers that quote those verses, but they don't really understand them for them they really don't know this. It's a verse they quote. In fact, I've heard believers say, well, nothing can separate us from the love of God, but I can separate myself. It's like they take the verse over in John chapter 10. Nobody can snatch him out of my hand. Oh, but we can jump. (laughs) It's just, in other words, there's believers that really don't grasp how much God really is for us, which Paul says right here in Romans 8, if he's for us, who can be against us? Even ourselves. And in fact, if you went back to chapter 7 in Romans, Paul actually says, I'm my own worst enemy. It's not other people. Paul already dealt with in Romans 7. I'm my own worst enemy. I'm the one that I make myself miserable because I've got this stinking sin nature that just drives me nuts. So with that then, understanding that there are some believers that do not know that, there's, they're, that they're free of condemnation. They do not know that nothing can separate them from Christ's love, and they do not really understand or appreciate fully what it means that they cannot be separated from God's love. We come to Romans 14, in verse 1, it says, Now receive the one who is weak in faith. And then the New, uh, uh, New American Standard says, Not for the purpose of passing judgment on uh, his opinions literally not entering into a dispute uh, over questionable things or things in which there's uh, doubts. says, so don't do that. Now, who is this person that's weak in the faith? Well, verse two, for indeed one believes that he can eat all things, but the one weak, now we're going to find out what a person weak in the faith does. he eats herbs. He's a vegetarian, not because he thinks being a vegetarian is better. He's a vegetarian for religious re- reasons. And he goes on in verse three, the one that eating, not let him despise uh, the one that's, uh, excuse me, the one that is eating, the one not eating, he's not to despise. And the one that is not eating, uh, that he's not to judge the one that does. But here, here's what Paul's getting at. And some of us in our modern society, we may not understand this. But Paul's writing to the believers in Rome. And in Rome, they had all these temples throughout the city. And there were they could go down to the meat market and buy meat. Now, if you had brought in a goat or a, some sheep and had it slaughtered that morning for, to sell in the marketplace, why would you waste slaughtering it and selling it when you could first take it up on the hill, have it offered at the temple of your favorite God, the God of your choice that morning, and then bring the rest of that meat down to the meat market. You've done two things. You've got in good with your God. And number two, you've got meat that you can turn around and sell to other people. Now, we don't have this. To our knowledge, the meat that Josh and Ben get down at the store that they turn around and sell to us. They have not taken that. The, the people that they suppliers have not offered it and sacrificed to others. But we don't know that. Maybe they do in those slaughterhouses. Maybe somebody reads some incantation and then they slaughter. We don't know what they do, but we don't really worry about this. Let's put it in modern sense. We really don't worry about this, but they did. And because of that, because some of them were weak in the faith and they didn't know that they were free of condemnation and they didn't know that nothing could separate them from the love of Christ and they didn't know that nothing could separate them from the love of God, they were afraid if I eat meat and maybe it was offered to one of those gods, maybe a God that I used to worship before I got saved, would that maybe separate me from God's love? And keep in mind, being separated from God's love doesn't necessarily mean you don't believe in eternal security. See, I had problems with those things. And the people in our church, you know this. I've told you this. I, I never had a doubt with regard to eternal security growing up. Never, ever did I worry that I'd lost my salvation or might lose it. But you know what I was confident of? I was confident of the fact that my Christian life was subpar. I knew that. I knew my life was subpar. No matter how hard I tried to be a Christian, I knew I blew it a lot. So I was convinced that when I got to heaven, number one, I was going to have to go through the grueling ordeal of the judgment seat of Christ where I was going to just be miserable and then I'd get to heaven and all of you wonderful Christians that had lived for God like you were supposed to, you're all going to get to sit around and sing praises and I'm basically going to be told to stand over there in the corner and be quiet. This is the way I was raised. The way I at least thought. I'm not saying that's what everybody necessarily taught me. But there, I did have people that told that did teach stuff like that. So some of these people, we're not saying that all of these, the weak in the faith necessarily thought that they could lose their salvation, but they might have thought that this would do so, so much harm to their relationship to God that it just, it might be ruined. Yeah, I'm going to heaven, but my salvation is ruined. I'm going out of this life a ruined believer. This is the way some people thought think today, this is the way these people thought. And so what do you do in a situation like that? What do you do in a situation where you've got believers in a setting and they're afraid that this thing that they used to do, they shouldn't do that anymore because it might in some way mess up their salvation. I've In some Bible studies that I've led when we've gone over these verses, I've actually asked people for feedback. Like, what are some modern day things that might do this. I basically grew up in churches where, guess what? If you went to a dance and you danced, you had a good chance you're probably going to mess up your salvation. Because that's just bad. Because, well, dancing was bad. <laughs> and we won't have to talk anymore more about that. Or if you touch a drop of alcohol, that's just bad. That's just bad. I don't care if you don't get drunk. You just alcohol is just totally bad and yeah alcohol has done a lot of damage to a lot of a lot of people's lives but God never says that it's absolutely off limits I hope that doesn't offend anybody to hear that but you just can't demonstrate that from the word of God or um so started dancing alcohol oh listen to music you know should you only listen to to Christian music <coughs> Should you only listen. In fact, some people—it's like you shouldn't even listen to Mozart because Mozart was an immoral, uh, was an immoral man. So, so if you're a Christian, you—if you're going to listen to classic, you only listen to Bach because Bach wrote religious music. You know. So, I mean, you get the idea. In a modern day, and this stuff still goes on. And I'm sure there are modern takes on this that I'm not even aware of in our current culture. That maybe some of the young people uh, in our church. Uh, They maybe are more aware of than I am in terms of things that have become issues. Uh, But some people would say that's off limits. Uh, You you don't do that. Oh, here's another one that our church messes up with every summer. You don't have mixed bathing, which that's a fancy word, old word for men and women do not swim together in the same location at the same time. So we every summer... Gary and Leslie invite us up to their pool on Sunday afternoons and other times, and we swim together, and there were churches. That's off limits. You don't do that, okay? Just trying to say there are examples of this in a modern-day setting that sometimes we might have to think about. So as Paul is talking here about these kind of problems, I want us to go down here in this um Verse five, the other one that he used is one person, and this is one that is still a modern day issue among some believers. One person regards one day above another and another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, there are some people that still think that we are under some sort of a Sabbath rule. And uh, by the way, I was reading uh, something to Jim uh, this morning out of a book by a man by the name of Irenaeus or Irenaeus of Lyons, who was a second century bishop. So he's, he was, I think he died around 186. Uh, but he, here he is, there's people that say that the Sabbath wasn't changed until under Constantine, but Irenaeus actually writes, he's writing sometime prior to 186, and he says, we're not under a Sabbath law. He says, we are not inquir- acquired, are required to keep one day special above another, that we've been freed from that law. Uh, among the other. And he actually goes through a number of statements about the fact that we're not under the law of Moses. So I just kind of thought that is interesting. But this this was an issue. Still is an issue sometimes for some people in some settings. Now let's look down in verse 14 here of Romans 14. And notice what Paul says down here about this. I know, and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean of itself. Now we're going back up to those things offered to idols because that's the that's the first issue he's dealing with here in other words there are these people are avoiding these things because they're offered to idols and they were unclean and so he says unclean nothing's unclean of itself despite the fact there are some people that think there've always been clean and unclean that was something under the law and by the way if you go and look at this under the law and if you have a question you can ask me and i'll have to i'd have to look it up it might take me a little while to find it but in leviticus God says the reason that he drew a distinction between clean and unclean was to make Israel different. It wasn't because those things were naturally clean or unclean. It was to make Israel different because they said they could do everything God wanted them to do. And he was showing them under the law how hard it is to do everything God asks us to do. And so he says, there's nothing unclean of itself uh, in the Lord, Uh, But to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. In other words, if a person has an issue in his head, you you need to know, then it really is for him it's an issue in that moment. Which is going to relate to a question he's going to say about the exercise of faith in the context. But, so uh, remember, this is about food and some are vegetarians because of this. So you go to verse 15. For if it because of food your brother is hurt or grieved... You are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy or ruin with with your food him for whom Christ died. In other words, if you know, hey, nothing's unclean of itself. You got a problem with food, that's your problem. I'm having a ham sandwich for lunch. I don't care. I'm not giving up my liberty of eating a ham sandwich simply so you can feel better about yourself. Paul says don't do that. He says if you do that and that grieves or hurts that other believer in that way, he says, You're not walking according to love. Remember, you presented your body as a living sacrifice to God to live and to serve others, not to live and to serve yourself. And so as he's talking here, he says, You're gonna ru- you, you might ruin that brother. Now, in the in his his conclusion in Romans 14 is a little bit different. His conclusion here is a little bit different. If you connected this with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 about how it hurts or stumbles a believer, and turn over to 1 Corinthians 8, for those of you that haven't seen this. Because we have, we have this expression of stumbling, and I think a lot of people do not understand what Paul means by stumbling uh, other believers. He says in verse 13... Of Romans 8, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Now, stumble, we just think he's going, oh, he ate that thing offered to me. Oh it's, oh, it's horrible. This is not what he means by stumbling. It's just a person standing <coughs> against, Oh, I can't believe he did that. If you look back in the context, verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, Will not his conscience, if he is weak, again, we're talking about a weak brother, be strengthened to eat the things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. In other words, he doesn't do it because he understands the promise that you are not condemned, you are not separated from the love of of Christ and not separated from the love of the Father. He's doing it because he saw you do it. And he's going, well, Tim did it, so I guess I'll do it. That's different. Than being convinced of those promises that eating meat something unclean tradition under the law will not affect him and that's how he stumbled he stumbled not because he's going oh he stumbled because he goes, I guess I'm gonna do what he's doing and you actually get him to to do your to participate in the action yes and this isn't an unknown sin that the weak brother didn't tell you you know for a fact. Right. This this is flagrant. If you, I mean, in an in a average church setting, if you had somebody that was a new believer and they have an issue, unless they tell you they've got an issue, how do you know? I mean, you'd, you'd have to tiptoe through life and everything if you were just worried about, does this person know that? You don't know. This is obviously that this believer, you know this believer has a problem with whatever issue. Thank you. Very good point to bring out. So back in Romans 14, you're ruining them Because this person is doing something, and I want you to look down in the context to see, I think he's talking about the same thing he said in Romans 8. At the end of Romans 14, he says in verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or anything by which your brother stumbles. And that stumbling, I think, is the same thing we have over in Romans 8, because notice what he says. The faith which you have have it as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves and then he goes on and this is what this is what happens. but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because it is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now he's not saying that you and everything you do in life you have to go, well can I do can I break the yard in faith? Can I drive the car in faith? Can I sit down in faith? This is not what he's talking about. He's talking in the context about you going ahead with an action that, you're, that you think could have negatively affect your relationship with God. And you're not convinced you can do it, but you see your brother do it, so you do it for that reason. But you're not doing it out of faith that it won't change your relationship with God. That's the faith issue here that he's talking about. And he says, if you go ahead and you do something. So what's happening is it's not you that's acting here in this context without faith. You are acting in faith because you know it won't change your relationship. But he, you are getting him to do it while he's having a doubt. Everybody get that? That's the point. So now, if we go back up in the context and we go to verses 16 and 17, Romans 14, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let... What is for you a good thing, be, e- be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, th- this is a good place to demonstrate we are in the kingdom of God right now. There's an aspect of the kingdom of God that was in the past. There's an aspect of the kingdom of God that is yet to come in the future. But we are in the kingdom of God right now. And part of being in the kingdom of God is the liberty that we have in Christ. But Paul said, that liberty does allow me to eat anything and drink anything. But Paul says, but that's not really the point of the kingdom of God is just to let you eat. It's not about, hey, I can eat anything now. That's not really the big point. So he says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's character that's lived out. And he goes on then, he says in the next verse for he who serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved of men so then let us pursue the things that make for peace and build one another up so in other words what he says the one that serves Christ in this way what he's what he's indicating here is that you know when you put other believers first rather than yourself first, and the things that, that are struggles for them where they are in their Christian life because they have not yet maybe matured as much as they need to, They're, they just haven't gotten there. It's really easy. I, I, my wife's going to turn 56 tomorrow. I turned 56 last month. I got saved when I was five years old. That's let's see if I can do my math. That's 51 years ago. I've been saved for a long time. Everybody tells me I did my math right, okay. Um, that's 51 years ago. That's a hard thing to imagine. And it's really easy after many years of doing this, Jim was saying he's been teaching the Bible for around f- almost 40 years. You stop me think about that. You, It's easy to forget where you were when you started. <laughs> It's easy to forget all the time in between that God has been maturing you and the things, the things you've gone through in that time, all the times you've fallen on your face, all the times that you have done blunders, all the times that you've just outright sinned and basically told God, I don't care, I'm gonna do this. And God, in his long suffering, his patience, and his grace, has left you here, still breathing the air, to say, okay, are you ready to get back up and do this right? And he keeps giving you this opportunity. And we forget all of this time in between and we can become, when you've matured, a little impatient with these people back here. Last weekend, our daughters were home and one of them brings along her little girl, who's two. And I turned to my wife more than once over the course of the weekend, I forgot what it's like to have little kids around. Little kids that are two and are defiant and are fussy. and. They want to do what they want to do. <laughs> I forget what that's like, because I'm so far removed from that at this point. And she was joy to have, don't, don't get me wrong, but there's times you're like, okay, I'm ready to go and sit in the other room because I just, I don't want to have to deal with whiny kid laying on the floor because she didn't get to eat the things she wanted to eat, you know, and you you can do those kind of things. You forget. Time passes, and the same is true in terms of where we are in our maturity. And so he says, the one that serves Christ, you're serving Christ because you're putting other believers first rather than your rights, your ability. He says, that's well-pleasing to God. Well, I need to check my my language. Yeah, well-pleasing. I just want to make sure I have the right word. It's well-pleasing to God. God to, to use the example that Leslie quoted from the Old Testament, that those sacrifices were a good-smelling odor to God, Just think of it in terms of that with us. When a believer really serves God in this way by putting other believers first, it's kind of like walking through the neighborhood. My wife and I run into this occasionally. If you walk late in the afternoon, you smell somebody cooking food and you're going, what were you fixing for supper? I want that instead because it smells really good. And I think all of us can relate to that, what it's like when somebody's cooking some meat and you smell that searing on the grill or something and you're going, oh, smell. That's what he's saying to these people. And they could relate to that, remember? Because they're they're burning these offerings out there, and there's a smell of this meat roasting on these on this fire. And he says, God looked at that and said it was a good smell. Likewise, as we're well-pleasing to him, just as an example, it is a pleasing aroma. We're, we'll have to look at those, because we actually do have some places in the New Testament where Paul does use the language of sweet-smelling aroma in some of these. We just weren't looking at it right here this morning. So hopefully as we are continuing to look at these things, we realize we have the potential as New Testament believers of being pleasing to God in our daily conduct. And that being pleasing to God, as we saw uh, in Romans 12, has to do with serving others by presenting your body as a living sacrifice and using your gift and doing it out of love, not just doing the gift, but doing it out of love. And Romans 14, it's well pleasing to God when you put them first rather than the things that you can do. Yeah, you can do those things, but their growth and maturity is more important than what you can do. And that's well-pleasing to him. That's well-pleasing. And both of those, the appeals in these things are based on who we are in Christ. They're not laid down as laws because we're not under law. It's an appeal to say, who are you in Christ? And you're all part of these people together. So why would you, why would you do this? It's, it's laid down in terms of not a law, but laid down to us is appeal to who we are in Christ. Okay, as we close. I always tell people this at church. If you have any questions, you can get a hold of me. My wife has a question here. So verse sixteen. Um, I just close my Bible just a second. Wow. Romans fourteen, sixteen, yes. So do not Let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So the good things are eating and drinking whatever you want because God says there's no law against that. That's right. You're not regarding special days. But a weak believer will take those good things and the blaspheme God because of our acts. I mean, that's spoken. Right. right? So in other words, it's a good thing for you, but if they see you doing it, then they're going to go and oh, God's going to judge you. And he's not going to judge you. That's the, and he said that up in the context. Don't let them judge you in this. Well, how do you, or he tells them not to judge you is what he tells them to. He says, you don't despise them and you, and those guys that have problems don't judge these believers. But he gets down here and he's making really most of the, at the beginning of this chapter, he does kind of appeal to both sides of the problem. But as the chapter goes on, he puts the weight of the problem on the mature believer, not on the immature guy. See, yeah. And he says, if you're mature, it's a good thing that God allows you this, but don't let that thing be blasphemed by you flaunting that liberty in their face. And now all of a sudden, then they're making statements that are not not good. Anybody else? Anybody online? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. What's yes. your question? Yes. Oh, no question. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're glad you're still with us, Gary. Josh was going to make a comment here. On the point of the Old Testament sacrifices being the uh, sweet smelling savor, I would just point out it wasn't always, though. That, uh, when they offered inferior sacrifices, he yeah. was not. And even in Hebrews 10, I think he did not desire. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you couldn't hear Josh, Josh was just pointing out, not every sacrifice in the Old Testament was always well-pleasing to God or was a good saver because there were sometimes they were offering, sometimes they were thinking, I can sin, and then I would just go offer a sacrifice and make it right. And and, uh, and Jim in the first hour was actually kind of talking about that, that it wasn't sacrifice and offering that God desired. It was really a change of heart. That was the thing God wanted. I appreciate it appreciated being reminded of that. So it's kind of like the same thing with us. We can go, well, if I just do a good thing, it'll take care of the bad things I do. Well, that's not really the way that's why God said to Saul, um, that it wasn't sacrifices and offerings. He wanted was obedience. Remember? And that's, and that's why Saul ended up getting into trouble because, Mm -hmm. well, Saul Saul laid the responsibility of what happened on the people that were there rather than taking the responsibility himself, which David did not do. David took more responsibility. Anybody else?